Well, good evening. It's good to see you guys again tonight as we are moving forward in our, uh, in our Christmas season. We're beginning a series called Simply Christmas. And for my family, Christmas kind of began uh, yesterday. Uh, the Christmas season launched off as my family and I went out to the Christmas tree farm out here at the Sand Pines Christmas Tree Farm. It's our favorite place to check out. Free popcorn if you're ever looking for a cool place. But we headed on out there, and we decided this year, hey, we're going to get our kids a, a little tree. And so we, we wound up with our first Charlie Brown tree. And anybody ever had a Charlie Brown tree before? Those are awesome. And so we got this tree. It's beautiful on the front. The back has absolutely nothing on it and the kids picked it out. So we're really excited about that. So we got that thing. We drug it upstairs. We put it in the stand, and it was almost, the stand was almost too big for it. We had to, like, screw every single one of those little screws in all the way as you possibly could. And we said, here's some lights, kids. Have at it. You know, make it look great. So they got up there, and they started dealing stuff. And suddenly we hear arguing and fussing and complaining. They're my kids, so that's pretty normal. But we started to realize that, hey, what's going on is, is that they hit the perennial problem. That, that men for centuries, okay, for the last century prior to this, this last few years, have been dealing with every single year Christmas starts, every single time, the same kind of stress, the same kind of problem, and that is Christmas tree lights and lights on the house. That, that eventually what happens is you get that old strand of lights out, you plug it in, and one of the bulbs is out. Now, I understand. I got rebuked after first service. That's not how they make Christmas lights anymore, and I know that, and nobody here in our church probably when they plug in a bunch of Christmas lights to go, oh, it's, it's out. I need to check every bulb. No, we throw it in the trash and go to Walmart and buy more. I get that, but that's where we're at in a new culture. Then the old culture, back when my, I was a kid, when my dad brought out the Christmas tree lights and plugged that sucker in and it started going, he was sitting there for hours checking every bulb because it was broken and there were no lights coming on anywhere. It didn't matter what happened. Then came that ingenious point where you could plug the lights in and only half the strand would turn on and right where the, the bad light was, the rest of it was off. And now it's just like one light off. So I, I get that we've advanced and stuff. But to me, it's funny. My kids look at this set of lights and they're not willing to go through the lights. They just throw it away and go downstairs and grab some other lights off our tree and, and put it on there. And so we wound up with this interesting situation. But Christmas tree, um, Christmas lights are a reminder to me about what we're going to be talking about. When we come to Christmas, when we come to this time period, especially as Olive Branches, we're seeking to change everyday people into a community of passionate Christ followers. Some of us can feel a little discouraged getting off of your Thanksgiving, coming off of all the stuff that you've gone through. Maybe you had some tension with some, some in-laws or some family members, or maybe you, you found yourself staring again at your pocketbook and you just did bills tonight or something and went, or this morning and went, oh man, we don't have any money for Christmas presents. And and, and all this stress is starting to happen again. The season's starting to unravel. And it's only day one and, and all that craziness is going on. You're going, Greg, you really depressed me about Christmas. No, no. I just, I just think what's interesting is as passionate Christ followers, something can happen. We can desire to be after what God calls us to do. We can dive in and we can think that everything should be perfect when we figure it out. We go, oh, God wants to use me. God's got a plan for me. I'm going to be used by God. I jump in and I take off and it gets harder, not easier. Anybody been there? Anybody ever realize you're sitting there and you're like, why in the world is it worse when I'm doing what God told me to do than before? 
I thought when you find out what God's called you to do, it gets better. And yet, that's exactly where the Christmas story dives in. I want to take us to the actual Christmas story. Not the cheesecloth Christmas story that, that we watch on TV and stuff. I'm talking about the real one in the Bible. And so if you got your Bible, open it with me. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18. And if you're new to the Bible, if you're, this is your first journey really through it, uh, I, I want to congratulate you on your first time getting to read the Christmas story from the original the original Christmas story from the text. And, and so right here is where we're at. And if you want to go to page 807, oh man, I got one of those like shoulder blade itches where you can't get to it. So, so it's, I love evening service. It's like real life in here. You know what I'm saying? So what a, and so in Matthew chapter one, verse 18, we're going to go through two to two 16. We're going to look through this. And this is one of the first stories. This is actually following Joseph. And what we're going to see is we're going to dive in. We're going to dig with a little bit of digging. We're going to see what the, what the original context was saying and with the emotion and the difficulty that is actually in the Christmas story that so often is missed because we live so many centuries later. And yet it begins here like this. Let's, let's, let's join in together right here in verse 18. Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Let's pause right there because there's a lot of history right in those two verses that are important. If, you, if you've not been in the, ver, in the Bible a long time, you probably haven't run across this concept of betrothal before. And it's important to note because betrothal is different than our current modern engagement. Our modern engagement is kind of, um, is kind of just a semi-important phase where you're planning for your wedding day. A betrothal was far more important. In fact, it's the opposite of how our secular culture approaches marriage in general. Our secular culture, obviously, uh, in many ways, and from what I see from television and talking to people throughout the years, it goes, you, you meet, you have sex, you move in, you get married. That's kind of the modern paradigm of, of marriage, approach to marriage, and then you move into the marriage life. In the ancient world, it's complete opposite. You don't get to meet. Your parents come together. They, they, they do an interview process looking at other people and looking and finding the best family that fits their child. They pull that child together. They lock in. They sit down, and then they... Everything okay there? All right, so like I said, welcome to evening service. So, and so you lock in and, you, and, you, and they would meet. So I would meet my wife, Teresa, and my dad would have met her parents and we would have sat down with a formal contract. And this contract would be signed, a dowry would be given, things would be, gifts would be exchanged, and an official message would be locked into, uh, an official relationship would be locked into. Now what occurs from there is it begins to expand into a, a more intimate relationship as you kind of meet together once in a while with supervision, but you are not moving in, even though, and you are not having sex, even though you were considered husband and wife. It was only until after the marriage that any of that kind of stuff happened. And so you have a very real reversal of the entire situation that's going on here. And so what's going on is they've entered into this betrothal period where they are, they are considered husband and wife. They are united in the law and in the eyes of the people around them. And then Mary comes up and is pregnant. And Joseph has one thought, I bet. He goes, that ain't mine. That's his thought right there. Something's wrong. That isn't my kid. And so the next conclusion is she has committed adultery. 
on me. This is now officially a massive problem. And then she says, no, it's of the Holy Spirit, which only ups the ante even more because now she's blaming God for the whole thing. And so the situation looks really interesting, but what Joseph does is he says, as a just man, he was unwilling to put her to shame, so he resolved to divorce her quietly. The next important word here is that word shame. Too often we ignore it, but in a cultural context, shame and honor is a radically different way of life than you and I as Americans are used to. We live in a right-wrong culture, in an innocence guilt culture. Where when you're told you did something wrong and we feel guilty or we are guilty and therefore have to pay a penalty for that guilt. In the honor-shame society, you're talking a totally different thing. It's, it's about where you stand amidst the, the other people in your group. Whether it's a tribe, whether it was a family, whether it was a city, whether it was a, a general people. And you had a pecking order and you were known by the, how good your name was. So a good name was good honor. And your family existed as the best male name in the family. That's how the ancient world worked. And so here's the problem. They were looking around at other honorable families of equal standing, choosing their children to come together in hopes that this would up their honor or bring a greater honor to one family or another. So you weren't allowed to marry lower in the shame class. You weren't, and all this stuff's going on. And if you were to go against the family, what often would happen is something very serious. Neil Qureshi in his book, Finding Allah, or Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, a man who left the Muslim religion and entered into Christianity, wrote about one of his his cousins, and she, he lived in a, in a very typical Pakistani family. And in that typical Pakistani family, they, they had a daughter who was uh, in America who is now going to date a non-believing, uh, a non-believing Muslim, in a sense, a non-Muslim. The family gathered that girl together, sat her down, and it, and it was the grandfather and all the siblings, uh, or the, all the children, the siblings, the cousins, everybody gathered in the same room and each had their go at her to tell her why what she was doing was shameful, uh, dishonorable against the religion and how it had killed their grandmother. Literally everything that could be thrown at you to make you and pressure you into choosing the cultural moral correctness so that you do not lose honor, so you don't have a worse name, was going to be thrown at this person. And that's what Joseph's facing. So Joseph had received Mary, and he will, but if he, if he had him, in this case, where we've got him pause, he's staring at this problem, and he's saying, if I receive this woman into my life, I will be admitting, A, I, it is my child, and we couldn't wait, which lowers our honor. Or B, it's saying that she's an adulteress, and I don't care, I'm all good with that kind of stuff, which lowers our honor. It's likely he was getting pressure from his father to divorce her very publicly. And a public divorce, he would have stood there in front of the community and said, this woman is an adulteress, she's a shame, and he would have publicly shamed her. If not, had brought her to a place where she would have been executed. But he decides, no, I'm, I'm going to quietly divorce her. I'm going to quietly remove, uh, allow her to go her way and not publicly shame her. In this way, he protects his family from the shame and he protects her, um, protects her from being publicly ridiculed by, um, by the family. And so Joseph takes this very serious situation. But then it becomes worse. Look at verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And now Joseph has a new situation. Where the social pressure is heavy upon him to divorce her, God has come into the situation and told him, no, you to take this woman because I'm up to something. This child is an important child. Note what it said. This is the one who will save his people from their sins and then ties it to a prophecy in Isaiah. Joseph would have understood what was going on here. This is roughly the time in which God was, begin- was to fulfill many different portions of his scripture. For those of you who are new to your Bibles, this back half here, this front portion, everything before this first page in Matthew is the Old Testament. And in it are all kinds of, all kinds of promises that God has made to the people of Israel, beginning all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the book of Genesis, are promised after they've sinned that a seed was coming that would save them and would crush Satan. There was a promised child on its way. Abraham received the same promise. There was a promised child would be a blessing to all of the nations. That promise would move on. It would be found in, in Moses as he would proclaim a prophet that was like him and that would be coming. Then David steps in and David receives a promise that there would be a king on his throne that would never cease to rule. He would rule for eternity. And that, and along with other prophecies, came to be understood as the concept of what we know today as the Christ, the Messiah. An anointed king who would come and rule and reign and save his people from their sins. And now what, Mo, what, what, he, what Joseph's being told here is, listen, I'm offering you an opportunity. Joseph, I'm offering, offering you an opportunity to enter into what I'm doing. See, God was doing something in Christmas. He was giving his ultimate provision to the world. And this ultimate provision was of his son, Jesus, who would bear our sins. This would be the sacrifice for everyone who would receive him. Let's not lower this. Let's not lower the fact that at Christmas, Jesus' sacrifice was in view, that he came to actually bear sin, to actually take our punishment on himself. Our judgment, the hell that we should receive was going to end up on him. The problem of Adam and, that Adam and Eve had caused and the humanity had been fighting ever since was going to be resolved in this boy, Jesus. And Joseph is being told, you are going to raise this child. Now, Every Jewish man and every Jewish woman wanted to be the parents of the Messiah. They wanted desperately to be involved in God's movement, in God's provision. You know, I think every Christian I know of wants somehow to be engaged in what God is doing. Isn't that true? I mean, we don't want to sit on the sidelines and simply go, "Ah, that's good with me. Jesus do whatever he wants. I'm saved. I'm good. No, I hope that's not your standpoint because God wants to use us. He saves us to make us usable by him. And he has good works for us to accomplish. And yet what happens, however, is that we back away at times. Joseph is at that decision point. He's being offered that opportunity to enter into God's provision and be a part of this. But the problem is it's going to cost him. See, what comes along with this shame is huge. It's very likely his family would stop getting jobs if he married Mary. When, and we will see that he does. In fact, let's just look at that, verse 24. 
When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to, this, to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph receives Mary, and it's very likely that at that point his family began to get public shame. There were, his father would have been looked at, what are you thinking? You don't have any ability to choose a wife. Why would you choose such a dishonorable people? Why would you raise a son who wouldn't listen to you? And then Joseph would have been shamed by his family, probably kicked out and pushed out of his family in such a manner that he wouldn't get the family jobs. And it very much is likely that Joseph wound up becoming a carpenter, not because his father was a carpenter, but because that's what he needed to do to make a living, having been shamed from his family. And so there's a very real situation going on here that Joseph's shame is heavy upon him. It's heavy upon his family. And he's not going to be able to provide for the very child that God has asked him to provide for. Even though this child is a provision for the world in their sinful problem. And here's the trick though. Joseph had to look at a cost. He had to look at a, a payment. And that's where we're at. That, that, that chain, that old chain of lights... I think about it, those Christmas lights twinkling there. They want to shine out to the people. We have a vision of what it could look like and we see it and we come to realize there's a cost. There's a cost in putting them up. There's a cost in all this stuff. But when, that, when we plug in those lights and they don't turn on, there's a cost because one of those lights isn't passing on the electricity that's coming out of that plug. It's going through and it's stopping somewhere. That light is, is short-circuiting what the intention is of that entire strip. One light. And Joseph was offered this opportunity and he was looking at his life and he was saying, do I want to be the one light that's not going to continue on the provision because I didn't want to pay a cost? And this is where it comes down to. To be a part of what God is doing, we must expect a cost. If we're going to be a part of what God is doing, there's going to be a cost. Why does it get harder after you find out what God's called you to do and you start doing it? Because there's always a cost involved. We, we think a blessing all wrong as an American culture, don't we? We go like, ah, I wish I was just blessed because blessed means happy and happy means I'm just a zippity doo and all day long. It's just good. And God goes, no, 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 no. There is a cost when you come to provision and blessing. It's not just free flowing. God just pours great things out and there's nothing to tell. No, there is a, there's a clear, real situation here. As if we want to be a part of what God is doing, just as those lights have to pass on that electricity, they have to pay that cost to move it on forward, we have a cost that God's going to call us to. And some of us are facing that. Earlier last year, maybe God called you to get debt free. You've been working on it, but what you've discovered instead is that there's a debate now in your heart versus happy kids on Christmas and joyful grandchildren versus actually being debt free. And man, that credit card looks good. Or maybe you're sitting there struggling with, with uncle whatever or aunt so-and-so or your brother or your sister and, and you're going, God, you know God has called you to be a peacemaker. And God wants you to be a peacemaker, but there's going to be a cost. It's going to cost you to, sh- to take on a little bit of shamefacedness. You're going to have to eat crow a little bit. You're going to have to apologize. You're going to have to go through some painful stuff to make it right. But you know that's what God's called you to do and there's going to be a cost involved. 
Or maybe he's called you to be an ambassador to somebody on your, in, your, in your neighborhood or, or maybe it's in your workplace and you realize you're going to have to look a little foolish as you stand for Jesus with these people in hopes that they might see you're serious in hopes that they might give you a hearing in hopes that they might realize the gospel. There's always a cost when we're going to engage in what God's calling us to do. We cannot think that God would give us such a great heavy weight as the gospel and it it cost him so much that when we finally receive it that there's not going to be some kind of movement cost put on. Now I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about once you receive this gift, it is a weighty gift. The gift that Joseph received is a weighty gift and it was going to cost. The trouble we have though is that it feels like God gives us this only really to seem to leave us in suffering. Why does it feel like that? Why does it feel like here's a blessing and we go, yeah, I'll pay the cost. And now you're just trudging through life. Is this where he's going to leave us? Is this going to stop and put us right there and say, enjoy your miserable life? It was better back there when I was sinning like crazy, wasn't it? Joseph's in the middle of toil and stress. In fact, he's sitting there for at least a year. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It goes on. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, we'll cover the Bethlehem story next week. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is a very odd text, to be honest. We don't read this right because there's so much cheesecloth and, 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 and pretty lights and Hollywood connecting all this stuff. So we get these ideas of what's really going on. It's like, we three kings, we got these kings coming in and they are standing there with pomp and circumstance and lots of... No, 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 no. First of all, the only king in the text is not a real king. His name is King Herod. And King Herod is actually the false king. He wasn't even Jewish. He was given that through intrigue with the Roman Empire. And he basically bought his ability into that position and has ruled with an iron fist ever since. The Jewish people hated him, even though he had rebuilt the temple and done all these great works. He was a power-hungry, crazy person. Second is these guys called the wise men. I find that a funny kind of statement. Because their title is a magi. Now, a magi was a Babylonian soothsayer astrologer. That's a mouthful. You know, that's why we call them wise men, right? It's easier. But the point is, these guys are, 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 these guys are your guys who write your horoscopes in your daily newspaper. They're like, oh, look, what's going on in Pisces? Write that down. Okay, pass it out in the Babylonian newspaper. This is what these guys do. They're, they're writing the fortune cookies. They're doing all that stuff. These guys are, are spiritual soothsayers. They're trying to figure out the future and find out what's going on. They read the stars. Now, they were probably informed by a man named Daniel, who was a magi, strangely enough, hired into, um, into a King Nebuchadnezzar's court. And Daniel became one of the top wise men. And so he, in his prophecies, which probably would have been well known in Babylon, amongst those who were also wise men, they'd been read and known. They knew this was roughly around the time at which you would expect this one king who was to come to appear. And so they were looking at this, and I believe they were looking at the stars, and they saw signs in the heavens that were given by God and went, there, the, the king is coming. Mounted their their camels marched for 30 to 50 days, depending on how long it took them and how much trouble they had and how big their caravan was. And it's not just three, it's probably a horde of them coming into Jerusalem, the seat of power of the Jewish people. 
So it's a really strange text when you read it this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, king of the, in the days of the false king Herod, behold, pagan astrologers came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born the real king of the Jews? We saw his star rise when we were staring at the stars. Then come to worship him. Now, when you have pagans coming to worship a human being, that's very different than a Jewish person would think. They're going, these guys are bringing idolatry. These guys are crazy, but Herod doesn't care about that. All Herod hears is, king, king, what king? And so it goes on, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Duh. Herod was at this point about to die. He was a few years, maybe a year to two years away from his own death at this point in the text. And what's interesting about Herod is at this point, he's going stark raving mad with power. He's killing people, trying to retain his seat of power, trying to make sure the person who gets it next isn't going to have as much power as him. In fact, he winds up killing his two favorite sons. Note that. He called them his favorite sons, and he kills them off because he thought they wanted the seat of power. And so it was said about Herod, it's better to be his pig than his kid because he was nicer to his pigs. And so it's interesting, this madman hears about a new king and everybody gets freaked out. And so he, he begins, notice Herod starts this interesting move. He starts snooping around. And he, so, he, so assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from, what, from them what time the star had appeared. Now he knows the time. He knows the location. He just needs to pinpoint the kid. And so he comes up with a plan. He, said, he actually says to them, Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the rest, came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Now, this star thing's kind of interesting. There are some theologians who claim it's an angel who's guiding them. There are other people out there who have done a lot of research using star and star charts and computers and have come to believe that this and likely could be a, could be a massive, um, just a, Oh, when a star blows up, no, supernova. Uh, it could be a supernova, or it could be Jupiter rising in a certain manner and its actions as it was working in a certain time period, which to me is very interesting when I was reading through that stuff. But just so you know, it's not unlikely that a true phenomenon of this star actually occurred. And so I want to, ch- don't, don't feel like that's a challenge necessarily that we have to be afraid of, but what we want to realize is that here they are, these magi have come, and they're wor- they've laid down their worship. They put these treasures before this kid, and then God gives them this vision to get out of here because there's going to be, uh, Herod's going to come and kill, kill this baby. And so opening the treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so now Joseph's in a totally weird situation. 
Mary is as well. They've been living in Bethlehem for a year, probably eking out an existence because of the shame. The family went home and they stayed away to try to have where they could have a little bit better shame probably, uh, a little bit better honor in their location. Eking out some kind of existence for financial situations. At the same time, they know Herod's a crazy person and they know this child's the Messiah and so they're trying to keep this baby under wraps. They're trying to keep this down and hidden. And so as this is going on, suddenly in walks these magi. Not three, there's three gifts. There's this group of magi marching in. They're probably coming, not with some small amount of pageantry, but a huge caravan. And people in Jerusalem are all freaked out about what's going on. They hear about this Messiah. They know what's going on. So you guarantee there are people walking along going, what is happening here? We want to check this out. And they're hoarding towards this house. Suddenly, in walks these three pagans. They're bowing down and worshiping this kid who's probably one and a half years old, possibly. And everybody's going, this must be the Messiah. And their cover's blown and trouble is up because Herod now knows exactly where they're at. He knows the child's there and problems are beginning to erupt. And so now, the other problem is that Joseph doesn't have any ability to sustain this situation. He can't leave. He doesn't have any money. And yet God tells him to, in verse 13, to leave. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord came, appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, which was a 70-mile trek. The only reason he was able to make it was likely because of these three treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now we could get into gold represents the kingliness and frankincense represents, but that's probably, that may or may not be the reason that they talk about these things. Here's the main reason that this is in the text. Gold is expensive stuff, even back then. Frankincense is expensive stuff. Just ask the oil people in our church. And myrrh is expensive stuff, even back then. All three of these equate to a living. The ability to live off it as God provided for them. Though Joseph had taken the cost, worked in poverty level. This boy was living in poverty. They were living in poverty. Now they had to flee. And at the right moment, God has brought in by three worshiping magi an opportunity for them to escape and be able to be sustained in Egypt. God's provision was right there. God's provision is ready for us. We just need to realize that when we are provided for, we're provided for to provide for others. Another way of putting this is you are blessed to be a blessing. You are provided for to provide for others. We are not to be simply people who stand firm. Those lights continue on. Those lights shine because one light gives away the electricity and keeps it passing. When you are given the gospel, when you are provided for, we need to pass it on. And the beauty of the image of the Magi is this. These are not Jews. These are pagan astrologers and they've come to worship the Messiah. And they are a picture of the Gentile nations coming to worship the king of the Jews, the Christ. Guys, I don't know about you, but that's important to me. Because my ancestors do not have holy 
Aaron and the priesthood standing before and preaching a beautiful message of mosaic, of the mosaic uh, truths and the, and the law and living in those beautiful ways before the Lord. No, no, my guys, I got witch doctors and I've got pagan astrologers and I've got crazy Celts dancing around in naked fighting Romans and, and burning human beings alive in giant people fires to appease their gods. That's my ancestors. If you don't have Jewish ancestors, you got psychos in your ancestry as well. They're called Gentiles. They're called pagans. And they come and they bow down to gods. But in this case, they've come to bow towards the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. How is it that the pagan nations came to know and be transformed by this Messiah? The people who would receive this gospel didn't hold on to it. They passed it on. They paid, they looked, they counted the cost and what they were provided, they provided for others. And some of us need to get open our eyes and say, I've been provided this gospel. I'm going to provide it for others. Some of you are going to do that in a foreign country. You're going to go provide what you've been provided for another people. And what we have and we've been provided for ought to go for the provision for others. The financial provision that we have ought to go for the provision of those who don't have to be a blessing, a conduit of God's provision. That's what Christmas was about. You may have an abundance of time. Allow God to use that to provide for others. You may have an abundance of just intelligence and God's given you a great education. How are you using that? How are you allowing it to pass on to others? You may have an abundance of talent and that talent ought to be passed on for the provision of others because God provides for us that we could provide for others, that's the very picture. Joseph was given a provision of this boy, Jesus, to give to the world. And he counts this cost. And with this cost, God provides for him through the provision of the Magi. So he could provide for the child who would provide for us. How, 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 do, we, how do we do this provision? It's simple. Just share the gospel, guys. On that daisy chain of lights, don't be the light that's out. Let that gospel keep going. When that comes to you, give it away. Who wants to be, have the strand dark behind them because we were afraid to count the cost? We didn't want to pay for it. We didn't want to pass it on. The second thing is, if, if you're confused on how to allow your, your provision to go on, here, here's a simple thing to do. Just worship God. Just worship God with what he gives you. When he gives you something, just worship him. See, the, the, the worship of the Magi became the provision for Joseph and Mary. Do you ever realize that your worship can be a provision for others? That when you worship God by shaking a hand when people come through this door, the new people on our campus who are walking around going, I don't know where to put the kids. I'm totally confused. I'm kind of nervous. This place is dark. And then they meet the person who's willing to shake their hand, give them a cup of coffee, care about them in a way of giving them information. Suddenly they go, I can breathe. Somebody cares. You provided for them. You're just worshiping God with what you're doing. You just want to use the gifts God given you. When you stand up here and, we, and these, these awesome men and women pour their time into giving their, themselves to their talents of, of singing songs, they're just wanting to worship God and they're providing us an opportunity to do the same. And they pass that provision along. And we all have this wonderful opportunity to pass on provision. 
I can remember at my old, my old church when I was growing up, the senior pastor at the end of every service would have us all grab hands and we'd all stand around and we'd sing the song, you know, God, something about Abel and God. And I was just like, oh, this song is ridiculous. This is how I felt. I'm like, I don't want to touch people. I don't know where their hands have been. I don't know where my hands have been. Oh, this is, that's how I got to that, that point. I'm just like, oh, great. Hi, yeah, you can't hold your hand. And it's like, it was just, it just yeah, whatever. It's just one of those things for me. But then it changed my mind the day when the, my senior pastor stood up and he said, guys, you know why we do this? He says, I did this once and a lady came up to me after service and she came up to me and she said, thank you for having us hold hands. Because that was the only time I've been touched in this week. And in the very act of worship, we were providing for somebody even when we didn't know it. In the very act of raising your hands in the middle of your trials, you are providing for people hope. In your knowledge that you can stand in the midst of time and proclaim God's glory, you are providing people with the security And our worship is a provision for people and we ought to worship well with our gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh was the very provision given from the worship of pagan men. What's beautiful then is that we understand one final observation that God will ultimately provide for us in the end. We're not done. We're not... We're not sitting here put under slavery to obey God's will and just, this is miserable and life stinks. No, God will provide ultimately. He will provide finally. He always does. If you just start searching your Bible, you're going to find it over and over again. Joseph here, the father of Jesus, has counted the cost and at the right moment, God has provided. But then you go back to the Old Testament. At the right moment, Adam and Eve are provided garments so that they can go out into this world given by the grace of God. At the right time, Noah is given the vision to build the ark and the door is closed at the right moment so that he can survive the flood. Abraham at the right moment is given a ram so he doesn't have to sacrifice his child. Joseph of the Old Testament is given, at the right moment is taken out of the prison and made a ruler to save his family so that his family would have provision in a famine. At the right moment, every single time God shows up, he will not leave you in the suffering. He will not leave you in the place where you do not have what you need. He will provide for you if you're standing with him and you've counted the cost and you're willing to go through it. The reason I know this is Jesus said this. He had just finished saying that it is impossible for the rich man to come to faith. And they said, how can this be? And he says, what's impossible for man is possible for God. And then they said this, Peter said, see, we've left our our homes and followed you. And Jesus replies with this simple statement. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. Olive Branch, what is God calling you to do that you've been afraid to do because of the cost? What move of obedience have you held back on that you know God has called you to? Missions? Is it somebody that you're supposed to reach at your work? Is it reconciliation? What is it? But hear me, if you're willing to take up the cost, it appears that there is no cost that God is not willing. No cost of the kingdom of God that he's not willing to give back many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. We have a greater hope than this earth. The small cost that we pay for now will be well filled in 
in the eternity of life with Christ. Guys, that's our bank. That's our hope. And so with provision does come cost, but God ultimately provides as he did with his son Jesus, as he will with us who follow after him in his footsteps. So let us not fear to passionately follow our Lord. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Tonight, there, if you're here tonight and you have not entered into a relationship with God because of the sin that's in your life, I want to give you an opportunity. You see, actually, God has come to this earth in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, is what it said. And what he means by that is there's a judgment that's coming. And there is a hell and a judgment that we must pay for the sins that we've done. And that's created because we have broken a relationship with God. But God desires that we would fix that relationship, reunite our relationship with him. And that's only done through Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus Christ bore our sins and is willing to bear your sins if you are willing to trust him. But hey, there's a cost that will come with that. You may have to walk away from some relationships, stop sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend, uh, figure out how to start walking after Jesus, and that's going to cause some discomfort and some cost. Trust me, it will. But those things don't save you. What God has done is he wants to save you today. He wants to give you the right relationship with him so that he can walk with you through those things. So I want to offer you the opportunity to have that relationship, but it's the sin that gets in the way. The only way to deal with that sin is to receive what Jesus has done on the cross. And so maybe tonight that's where you're at. If that is, and you need to be forgiven of your sins, and you need to begin that relationship with God, I'll give you a chance to do that right now. Just by indicating to me, just put your hand up and you're saying, yes, that's me. And I want to help walk you through a prayer that can help you verbalize this to God. So if that's where you're at tonight and you have this opportunity right now to receive this gift of forgiveness, not leaning on your own gifts or anything else, just begin right now where you're at with God and just begin to tell him the things that you've done that you know are sinful and wrong. Now we're gonna do something as you're kind of doing that. The next step is to turn away from those things and ask God to put them on Jesus Christ. That turning and toward God is called repentance. You're turning your direction around. And tell God that you want to give your life to him. Tell him that you trust that Jesus has borne your sins on the cross. And that you trust that because Jesus rose from the dead, you have new life. Finally, ask him to come into your life to begin that relationship with you and walk with you through the costs and all through this life and all through eternity to give you eternal life. And Father, for those in this room who may be praying through that this, this evening, I ask that you would enable them to walk with you and that they would see the costs and they'd be willing to take them because you're with them. And Father, that you would bless them with your presence and a freedom from the guilt that weighs us down from sin.
as they've been forgiven in Christ. God, for the rest of us, as we have to count other costs, we pray that your presence would be with us, your provision would be around the corner, and we'd be steadfast and faithful as we wait for that to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.